Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Osiris. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. Episode 19, 
This is Alex, and we are listening to and celebrating the great Leslie West. I know a Leslie West tribute is belated, for he left us in December of 2020, December 23rd to be exact. And unfortunately, there have been so many losses since then. And this was on the heels of one of our greatest losses, Eddie Van Halen, and Peter Green a short time before that. Now, under normal circumstances, a Leslie West tribute episode would have been immediately forthcoming. But for people of my generation and surrounding generations, Eddie Van Halen was like our raison de l'existence, or in English, our reason to exist, or the very least, reason to pick up a guitar or play it with more dedication or listen to it with more appreciation. But for an earlier generation, Leslie West filled that role. In between Jimi Hendrix and Eddie Van Halen, there was Leslie West, despite not having the celebrity status of either of their names. Let's hear from one of his fans right now. Well, I should mention um, the death of my dear friend Leslie West, the great guitarist of Mountain and, of course, of West Bruce and Lang. He was my hero. I was in high school. I was a loser. I was lonely. No one wanted to be friends with me. I would sit in my room all day and listen to music. And the, most of the music I would listen to was, you know, kind of heavy metalish rock. And Mountain was one of the heaviest bands. And in fact, the reason Mountain got together, it was three guys. And the producer of Cream, remember the band Cream with Eric yeah. Clapton and Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce, he got together with Leslie. Their whole idea was we want to be like Cream, except even heavier. Mm -hmm. And they pulled it off. Leslie West guitar had a sound that if you heard it, you knew it was Leslie playing. Here's an example. So while Howard Stern was going through his teen angst listening to Mountain, he was not the only one. Eddie Van Halen was born uh, almost exactly a year after Howard and was listening to him as well. And there are some pretty clear indicators, if you listen for them, of Leslie's influence on Eddie, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about yet another teen at the time in the early 70s, except he was all the way over in Hanover, Deutschland. And just like the very young Howard Stern and the young Eddie Van Halen, the young Michael Schenker is his name. He would sit in his room listening to the sounds of Leslie West. Now, the reason I bring up Michael Schenker is because he is the reason I discovered Leslie West. My teen years very much resemble the experience Howard Stern describes. <laughs> and among the records I would listen to in my social isolation were records with Michael Schenker on guitar. Now, Michael had made his first recording at a very young age on the debut album of the band formed by his brother, Rudolf Schenker. You've probably heard of them called Scorpions. However, neither he nor the band had really found their sound yet. And Michael left the band after one record. The brothers are still fighting about that, by the way. Come on, guys. Like, get over it. Anyway, it's another story. 
He left the Scorpions. He joined a band called UFO, a British band, and then did a series of albums under his own name called the Michael Shanker Group. Now, his first self-titled Michael Shanker Group album came out in 1980. I didn't actually discover it until almost half a decade later. And by then, guitar players were going crazy. In the wake of Van Halen, there was a crop of new guitar heroes, including Yngwie Malmsteen and Steve Vai. Joe Satriani wasn't nationally known yet. In fact, I think I was still studying with him at that time. Anyway, I started focusing on Michael Schenker because it just seemed like the over-the-top factor in guitar was getting a little bit out of control. So many people wanted to be the next Ingve, right? Ingve was like the Paganini of guitar. And soon there was a whole record label called Shrapnel Records, where a disproportionate number of the guitar players sounded a little too much like Ingve. Or the next Steve Vai, and Vai was doing these versions of Van Halen's tremolo sound effects. <laughs> right, but he found a way to reverse it. He had this bar made where you could do the tremolo up as well as down. In fact, he got a handle on the guitar so he could go even more crazy. It was just so much showmanship. And with all respect to him, it was just the imitators. It was getting crowded. And Michael Schenker played without a tremolo bar, without a ton of effects. It was just about note choices. It was about picking, uh, enunciating, putting emotion into the notes, the vibrato. And I was wondering... Where did he get this? It's just so unique. And I read an interview where he's mentioned his favorite guitarist growing up was Leslie West. You can definitely hear a resemblance. Here's a little bit of Michael Shanker. Now, here's a little bit of Leslie West. And can you hear a resemblance? Not that they sound exactly alike, but there is some common ground with the attack of the pick on the strings, the enunciation, the emotion, the vibrato. Somebody spent some time with some Leslie West records when they were younger. Now, my discovery of Leslie West had some timing that felt rather prophetic. It was just around the time I'd read this interview with Michael Schenker in one of the guitar magazines where he mentioned Leslie West that I was rehearsing at a studio owned by this very strict ex-cop. <laughs> the strict ex-cop had a brother who was his complete opposite, aging hippie, <laughs> that uh, didn't have a job. So the ex-cop sort of put him to work in the studio doing odd jobs. And I don't know what the story was with these guys. Why did the ex-cop own this music studio? Or maybe he acquired the property and the hippie brother talked him into renting it to bands. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. The hippie brother heard me playing and was very complimentary and said something to the effect of, you know, you sound good, kid, but you'll sound even better if you spend some time with some of the classics. And uh, anyway, I'm grateful. He gave me the stack of records and it included some Cream Mountain and a couple other things as well. 
And I remember when I heard the mountain stuff, there was one song I immediately recognized that I'd heard before. You know this one, the song that made Cowbell popular long before Christopher Walken ever appeared on SNL. This was a huge hit in the 70s, Mississippi Queen by Mountain, all over the radio, and it never left the radio. You'll still hear it today on stations that specialize in classic rock. Now, that's a great song, but we've heard it so many times, and it's what everybody thinks of when they think of Mountain. But there's so much more to Mountain and Leslie West than just that one big hit. I remember hearing the records that this fellow gave me, and I was drawn to this tune with a slide guitar playing. And Leslie West isn't really thought of as a slide player, but I think his slide playing here is fantastic. It's got all the nuance and emotion of his regular playing. And this is a really cool tune. It's called Crossroader. Let's hear a little bit of it. Now, you may notice that the vocal sounds a little different there. That's because it is not Leslie's voice you're hearing, but that of the bass player, Felix Papillardi. And Felix Papillardi was on staff as a producer for Atlantic Records and others, and just producing a wide variety of music. He had been classically trained. I think he had planned to become an arranger sort of found his way to the Greenwich Village folk scene, a lot of interesting trajectories of the 1960s music scene in New York. But Felix Papillardi comes into contact with Leslie West through The Vagrants, which, again, sounds nothing like Mountain. It was several years earlier, and they sounded like this. one of Leslie West's earliest recorded solos. Doesn't quite sound the same, does it? Hey, you got to start somewhere. He showed me some stuff on the guitar. I played crap guitar, man. I, I listened to some of that stuff now. I don't... But it was the <laughs> beginning of, you know, there's got to be a beginning. Yeah, there does. I didn't sound like I do right out of the chute. That is Leslie, ladies and gentlemen. And unlike some of us who communicate better through our instruments and we are not described as entertaining, at least when we're off stage, 
Leslie West seemed like somebody who really enjoyed being interviewed, enjoyed telling stories, and that you could have imagined sitting at a bar for hours with and just being kept in stitches. So here he's talking about Felix Papillardi, who, again, was the producer, but he also is a multi-instrumentalist, arranger, just a brilliant guy. And bass became his main instrument once they formed Mountain. But he was just this all-around musician, and here's how they got together. I started playing, I guess, trying to copy the stone. You know, in my first group, the Vagrants, I was, we were Stones, Beatles, you know, I didn't have any roots in the Mississippi Delta or any of that stuff. I had roots in Forest Hills, Queens. So when Felix produced the Vagrants, uh, a couple of years later, my brother says, you know, this group Cream. You got to hear this group Cream. He says, you know, the guy that produced us, Felix Papillari, he's producing Israeli years. I said, the same guy? He says, yeah. I said, well, why don't we sound like Cream? He says, we suck. You didn't practice. <laughs> so we went to the, it was the Village Theater for it was the Fillmore East. See Cream. My brother says, before we go, let's take some LSD. <laughs> Took some LSD and the curtain opened up and I heard Cream. I said, Larry, we really do suck. And then I started practicing. So Felix, once again, is Felix Papillardi, who was kind of a rarity in rock and roll at this time. A highly educated musician. He'd gone to School of the Arts in New York, went to University of Michigan and studied classical composition, putting his skills to use as a producer for upstart bands such as the Vagrants. He produced the Vagrants, Atlantic Records sent them in. He conducted Dinah Shaw's orchestra. You remember yeah. Dinah Shaw? Absolutely. He conducted a 90-piece orchestra at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I knew nothing. Yeah. So with all he knew and what I didn't know, that was a good combination in the beginning. Anyway. He produced the Vagrants. I see this guy come in and look like Sonny Bono. I didn't know, uh, you know. And uh, later on, I think uh, he was producing now Goodbye Cream. They were broken up. And I had this group. Went in the studio. We didn't have enough material. He says to me, I don't have enough time to write songs with you. I've got to go, you know, goodbye, cream. I said, well, what am I going to do? He says, well, maybe if you, this is a vagrant. Maybe if you guys break up, if you start something new, give me a call. Maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing that could happen. So now I'm really heartbroken. You know, Jesus Christ, here goes this. He goes over to England. And I'm in New York putting a group together with a jazz drummer, organ player, no bass, and me. So I call Felix in England, or he called me from Jack's house. I'm playing him one of the blues songs over the phone. He says, man, that really sounds great. He said, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. We'll go in the studio, blah, blah, blah. Go in the studio with these guys. Felix says, something's not right. I said, oh, here we go again. So, broke that group up. The only thing he kept was the organ player. You know, I kept was the organ player, Norman Landsberg, who helped me write Long Red, and he went on to play with the Pointer Sisters, but the drummer he didn't like. He was a jazz drummer. Felix's partner says, look, Bud Prager, says, if you don't do something with Leslie, he's going to probably kill himself. So, why don't you play bass? So, Felix says, right, I'll give it a try. Okay, I'm going to share two things with you. One will hopefully clear up some confusion. The other one may surprise you significantly. I know it surprised me. 
So Leslie West does his first album with Felix Papillardi, and it's called Mountain. But it is not the group Mountain. It is a Leslie West record, and that is the title of the album. And Felix's advice seems to be paying off. Felix has helped him choose musicians wisely. He has turned him on to Cream. He still doesn't quite sound like the Leslie West that we know from the 70s version of Mountain, but he's developing. In fact, no comparison from how he was playing in The Vagrants. And now he's singing, too, and he's got a distinct voice and some memorable songs. So we're going to hear a little bit of one called Long Red. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So remember that groove right after the chorus? Can you imagine somebody rapping over that? Let's hear that again. All right, right here. Imagine a rapper... Or whatever. It works great for rap. And guess what? If you having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. I got the rap patrol on the cat patrol. Foes that want to make sure my cask is closed. Rap critics save money, cash holes. I'm from the hood, stupid. What type of facts are those? That's my ace, huh? It's long red. He took and sampled with Billy Squires' "Stroke," the same song Kanye West took, wrote two songs, "The Glory" and Barry Bonds, and Common took the same damn song, and it sold around six, seven million altogether. That they're on my wall, but that that stuff, that one, that song was written in 1969. Wow! Can you believe it? On Leslie West's debut album, Mountain, that predates the band Mountain is like this uh, golden ticket or blueprint to some very essential hip-hop tracks, starting with Jay-Z's 99 Problems. The man whose idea it was to try this beat with rap artists, who is a fan of Leslie's, going back to some of his earliest work, and he built the beat for 99 Problems. His name is Rick Rubin. Felix is now not in the group, but he played bass on the album, produced it. All of a sudden, he says, well, now the album really sounds good. What are you going to do? I said, well, let's go on the road. He never really toured in the group. He was a folky from Greenwich Village, you know? Yeah. And he says, well, how do you think you'll do? How do you think we'll do? He's asking me. Like, I had a clue. Right. Oh, we'll be great, man. We'll, we'll be great. They never had, like, a, a producer become a musician. Right. You had a lot of musicians become, I'm making this stuff up. And sure enough, that was it. So Felix Papillardi has stumbled into being Leslie West's bass player. <laughs> He's really a producer arranger, but they have chemistry. It seems to be working. And he likes the idea of going on the road and maybe trying this thing as a performing musician, even though he hadn't planned it at all. He was really a behind the scenes guy, like an Eddie Kramer or a George Martin. 
and not as established, but at this point, he's producing Cream, which is like one of the hottest bands in the world. The new thing, you know, the Stones had been around for a while. The Beatles have been around for a while. They're on the verge of breaking up. Cream. So because Felix is the producer of Cream, it opens up a lot of doors. At the time, I thought he, this guy's incredible. Because, don't forget, Fresh Cream was already an album, and then they... Amin Erdogan was executive producer. And then all of a sudden, now they have Felix doing Disraeli Gears. If you look at the Cream video about all this, they credit with Felix was keeping the, you know, making songs, even though Wheels of Fire was a masterpiece, you know. There are studio songs, you know, and uh, some of the best songs. And I was really, uh, I couldn't believe how talented Felix was, you know, musically. I knew nothing, you know, so he said to me, you just play. You know, and I'll figure out. And he, you know, it worked. I learned a lot of what not to do because of him, and I learned a lot what to do because of him. He was like that in the beginning, and all of a sudden things got... It became a war? No, it became drugs came into it and screwed everything up, you know. With, with both of you? Yeah. And then... With everyone, actually. Everybody, but this particular. And then he didn't want to go on the road anymore, so I was just starting out. I flew over to England and called Jack Bruce, who he introduced me to, you know. And then we were playing Carnegie Hall, West Bruce and Lang, with no record. Clive Davis came in. All right, this brings us to West Bruce and Lang. I want to talk about that project. I just want to say a few more words about Felix Papalardi. No doubt that was an incredible break for Leslie to meet Felix and that led to playing Woodstock, meeting Jimi Hendrix which we'll hear more about. And of course, vast improvement as a musician and an artist. Ultimately, Felix decided he preferred being on the other side of the mixing board and went back to being a producer. And unfortunately, the story of whatever happened to Felix is a real rock and roll tragedy, like Marvin Gaye, uh, the case of being shot at close range by a close family member. In this case, it was his wife, Gail Collins, who they were actually a great team. She was a great lyricist and vocalist and it helped write some songs with Cream, even. Strange Brute, one of my favorite songs, and a great visual artist as well. She did all the Mountain album covers, which were instantly recognizable, the same way Yes had their artist, Roger Dean, and you could always tell it was one of their records. The early Mountain records all have a very distinct style, courtesy of Gail Collins, not to be confused with the current and longtime New York Times opinion columnist, Gail Collins. So they were thriving in the 70s, but as Leslie alluded to, there was excessive drug use in their scene, and sadly, by the early 1980s, it had taken somewhat of a toll. Gail and Felix kept a handgun in their apartment, which was not smart. Guns and drugs don't mix, as we all know painfully well. So as of 1983, rest in peace, Felix Papillardi. Now back to West Bruce and Lang. So this was the group that formed out of the ashes of Mountain and Cream. So Jack Bruce was the bass player, vocalist for Cream, and Corky Lang had been the drummer for Mountain. And they play at Carnegie Hall. They get a record deal. Unfortunately, Jack Bruce also decides he does not want to be in a band long term, and it's hard to blame him after what he went through with the drama of Cream. And you don't have to look very far to understand what I'm talking about. 
I'll refer you to a film called Beware of Mr. Baker from 2012, a documentary on the brilliant but highly erratic drummer Ginger Baker from Cream. And in that film, Eric Clapton comes across as the voice of sanity, the voice of reason. However, the way he's behaving lately, this anti-lockdown stance, anti-vaccine, nationalist comments he made in the 70s are resurfacing. I'm not so sure. All of which is to say, having just left that situation, it's hard to blame Jack Bruce for not wishing to jump straight into a long-term arrangement with yet another hard rock power trio. Yet, Jack Bruce was up for doing at least an album or two with Wes Bruce and Lang. They ended up doing two, the first of which, Why Don't You, is an album that is incredibly important but may not be so obvious. I would argue that this recording, despite not being as well-known to the general public, especially nowadays, this recording sounded nothing like anything before, including Mountain, and I'd even go so far as to say it changed music forever. This will all make sense, I promise, and I will explain why on the other side of this track. This is the title track of West Bruce and Lang, Why Don't You? got to keep in mind this is 1972 nothing sounded like it that level of tightness polish and heaviness with the guitars it's really a two guitar track it's not really a trio even though leslie is playing all the guitars and what's happening is up-and-coming bands are listening to this bands with two guitars saying oh we could do something like this with the driving groove the arrangements of the guitars. In other words, guitars that are complementing each other and not always doing the same thing. For example, the introduction of that song, Why Don't You? Here it is again. Now, there's actually a third guitar part right there, that but that's really a production enhancement. Thinking about this as a two-guitar part, this is a new sound. Leslie helped create this, and it will have an effect on the next wave of heavy rock bands, including some young lads in Australia who hear this and fine-tune it and take it to a whole other level. And four years later, in 1976, they introduced themselves to the world with this. Can you hear the similarity? In 1972, those guys, ACDC, obviously, were still getting it together. West Bruce and Lang had one of the hottest heavy rock albums. Maybe not one of the most commercially successful, but all the rockers were listening to it and emulating it. 
Never before had there been that type of driving groove and guitar arrangements, and it was ideal for two guitar bands. Now, ACDC weren't the only ones to sort of build on that sound. So let's consider not only the rhythm guitar arrangements, but the vocal sound. Here again is Leslie singing on Why Don't You? And that was no doubt listened to by a fellow Jewish New Yorker named Gene Simmons and his band that would make their debut a couple years later, Kiss. And that was 1974, two years after that debut album by West Bruce and Lang. And I don't need to tell you how many people picked up guitars in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, and beyond because of groups like Kiss and ACDC. So clearly, Leslie West's influence goes beyond his great lead guitar playing. He's influenced riffs and tone and rhythm guitar arrangements. He's influenced vocals, rap music, who would have thought? And there's so much more to talk about. And joining me on the other side of the break is Brad Tolinsky. He's the author of that comprehensive history of the electric guitar, Play It Loud, for which that great exhibit with classic guitars, Play It Loud, was shown in various fine museums, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That book was written along with Alan DePerna and blurbed by such folks as Carlos Santana and Billy Gibbons. Brad also has a brand new book about to be released, and it's called Eruption Conversations with Eddie Van Halen, a completely new look at guitar legend Eddie Van Halen via a groundbreaking oral history. It looks amazing. He will fill us in as well as help us continue to pay tribute to the great Leslie West. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. So how's everybody doing? Hope you're well. I'm doing well. It's a strange time indeed. I uh, did some shows and I wouldn't say it felt normal, but I'd say it felt great to get back to it. These were shows with Percy Jones, myself, Kenny Grahowski, and Tim Monster, collectively known as Pact. And it was just a quick swing through the East Coast. But we had a really good time, and the crowd was nice. The response has been great. Thank you very much, the response to the recording. And I believe some more shows are being announced for September. So hopefully everything will go as planned. The news is just so strange. You know, we're getting back to normal. No, we're not getting back to normal. So I understand the, the whiplash, but I also support everybody being vaccinated and precautions being taken. So on the podcast front, we have some really cool guests coming up that I am excited about. On the slightly negative side, we've had computer issues, crashes, freezes, 
but we are getting a new machine, and it's made possible by all our Patreon members and our sponsors. I also want to name Adam Tulipper, a top-level Patreon member who just signed up. Thank you, Adam. So let's get back to our episode, and we are going to be joined by Brad Tulinski. Cool. Well, thanks for doing this. So what should people know about Leslie West? <laughs> Beyond what I'm going to say, I'm going to say, you know, from my experience, he's a great natural guitar player, but I don't know that much about him. You know, I just know about Mountain and Mountain played Woodstock. They weren't in the film, so they didn't get as much of a do as they should have gotten. And I'm just going to pause right here. This is me speaking to you, the audience. Obviously, having done the research for the front half of the episode, I now know a lot more about Leslie West. And I'm referring to Woodstock there because they did not appear in the film. And Leslie West has expressed regrets about this. He was advised by management, don't appear in the film. They're not going to pay you. What's well, the big idea? But most of the artists outside of Hendrix did not get paid. Yet it turned out to be one of those rare examples where not getting paid was worth the exposure. And as a result, more people are familiar with the names Canned Heat, Country Joe and the Fish, and even Shanana than Mountain. And, uh, you know, he's a very natural player, not, no gimmicks, no effects. And I discovered him through Michael Shanker, because I was a big Michael Shanker fan. By one point, Michael Shanker mentioned his favorite guitarist, Leslie West, and I, was, I hadn't heard of him. So that was my introduction. It's interesting to me because I haven't really heard Leslie's name brought up all that much. And then all of a sudden, very recently, three or four different people were talking about Leslie for sort of asking me, well, do you know how he got that incredible sound? I mean, that's the hallmark, right? Is that nobody really sounds like Leslie West. He almost sounds like his guitar tone is almost that of like a, a great cellist or a great violinist or something like that. That's very true. You just want to luxuriate in that tone. And people were saying, well, how does he get that sound? They were asking me. And mm -hmm. I said, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't know, you know, mm -hmm. and then so I started just investigating it. And part of how he got his sound, how he mm -hmm. stumbled upon it is so fascinating. And yeah. then you start to see why it is unique. Mm. So what I discovered was that what Leslie used during that sort of period that we all know and love, during Mountain, the first album, and Climbing, and Nantucket Sleigh Ride, and on Mississippi Queen, and at Woodstock, is that he's actually using 1968 or 1969 Sun Coliseum PA heads. Hmm. That's unusual. He's not, yeah, he's not using like a Marshall Mar no amp Marshall, or any sort of right. traditional amplification. And how that happened, this is just some of the things that I've discovered, is yeah. that he was using Sun heads, which Sun at the time was a rival to Marshall in terms of their heads. Like, not too many people know this, but Jimi Hendrix actually had for a short period of time, a endorsement deal with Sun Heads. Really? That's interesting. The story goes that Leslie was going to a gig and he had these regular Sun amplifier heads mm -hmm. 
that were supposed to be sent to him. Mm-hmm. And when they arrived, it wasn't the guitar amplifier head, but it was these Sun PA heads. And he was like, well, what am I going to do with this? Hmm. So he started just messing around with it. And he kind of came upon something sort of brilliant. Mm-hmm. So because it's a PA head, there was a master volume mm-hmm. for all four channels on this PA head. Mm-hmm. And this is before guitar amplifiers had master volume on them, right? So yes, he started me- yes. messing around That's with right. that. Mm-hmm. And he plugged into one of the channels and made it as hot as he could do it. And then he started using the the master volume on the PA system to push it further Hmm. and Hmm. sort of in indirect way created one of the first master volume maps. He was like, Hey, this sounds pretty good. You know? So he went out and did the gig and just Hmm. fell in love with the sound of these weird sun Coliseum PA heads going through two Two speaker cabs. And I guess part of the quality is not only just the head with the master volume, but -hmm. it was also that the speakers had these CTS speakers that sort of broke up really nicely on top of all of that. And he just started using them. I mean, you can go up online and Uh see videos. And once you notice it, you can't look away that he's standing in front of just huge, huge stacks of these PA yeah, but he ran them like guitar amps, right? It was the same situation. Exactly, yeah. but he also used the master volume of the PA to create the overdrive. Oh, wow, wow. We were playing at the Fillmore West. It was our first gig, and Sun sent me these amps. They were Jimi Hendrix's old amps, Retolex, you know, whatever, no, I don't know. I opened the box. It's a Sun Coliseum PA head. I said, what the hell am I going to do with this? I had no choice. We're playing that night, you know, Mountain's first gig. <laughs> and uh, it was a PA head. Uh-huh. Are you ready for me to finish this? Go for Four it. Four mic inputs and one master. Gotcha. I plugged into the mic input. It was the first amp at the preamp. Game, master volume. Overdrove the daylight out. That was the secret to that sound. All these guys would call me George Lynch. What, what model son was it? You know, I said, you can look till you're blue in the face. It was a PA head. And allow me to jump in and share two well-known quotes that pop into my head while I hear that story. One being, necessity is the mother of invention. The other is, when someone hands you lemons, make lemonade. Dude, it said right on, Coliseum PA head. Jeez. PA. And then son said, well, Leslie, yeah, you know, everybody wants this. We're going to redesign it. I said, what are you redesigning? Just put it in another box and say guitar. And they screwed it all up. Unbelievable, because it was the first amp with master and game. You put in one one of those mic inputs and, you know. And he did that for a couple of years. Yeah, so that was a very unique and new new thing at the time. A new method. Yeah, absolutely. And then that combined with, you know, the Les Paul Jr. that he played. Mm -hmm is what really created that sound. I used it for uh, all of that early mountain stuff. Um, this theme from Imaginary Western, Mississippi Queen, Nantucket Slayer. And then it wasn't so, it was great for lead. 
you know, but the chords were a little muddy, and then I switched to, I think, Marshalls and Stramps, which were German uh, amps and so on. So, and now I have my own amps, Buddha. Yeah. And uh, nice amps. Oh, serious. <laughs> nice amps. You haven't heard this one yet. No. Goes to eleven and. Uh, <laughs> um, is, uh, and this is interesting. By the way, I want to credit Living Legends Music. It's a YouTube channel, and there's a lot more of that interview. They did a really cool job. I think that's around 2008 or 2009. And Buddha was an amp company. They were independent. They got taken over by PV. I was brought on to endorse them and have a signature amp as well. And I remember that was one of the selling points. You know, Leslie West is on board. That was practically all I needed to hear. I remember they had a really cool artist roster, several players of Leslie's generation, some young up-and-coming blues prodigies, folks who were in between, like myself. And unfortunately, the amps never managed to make it to the stores. PV had some internal business problems. Plants got shut down. They ended up on one of these business rescue reality shows, which is a shame because PV is such a historic company. But the amps at the time were very good. Well, Clapton called his tone in cream. He just called it the woman tone. The woman tone. It was sort of like, <laughs> it was sort of this, you know, beautiful, vi beautiful vibrato sound that he yes. wanted to create. Yes, sweet. And everybody tone, was pursuing yeah. that. And Leslie, I think, sort of almost doubled down on that sound, mm. which is why he, you know, people like Pete Townsend were just totally knocked out by by Leslie and Jimi Hendrix, too. Mixing Mountain Climbing, Felix Finn, we were at the record plant, and Studio A and Studio B was Jimi Hendrix doing Band of Gypsies. And Felix says to me, go ask Jimi to come in and listen to it. I said, well, you're asking me to ask him? I mean, I'm a punk kid from Forest Hills, New York. What am I going to, Jimi Hendrix, you're going to, so what do I have to lose? So I walk in, I say, Mr. Hendricks, Felix Pavlori, we'd like you to come in and listen to our album is finished. And he comes in, and Never My Life's on, our first track on the album. And he hears the, me doing the riff. He looks at me, he says, that's a great riff, man. As soon as he said that to me, none of my friends could talk to me again. I mean, I forget them. My head swelled up. Came down pretty fast, but, and then a couple, couple of weeks, uh, whenever it was, um, funny enough, Steve Miller is playing at this club in New York, Kulangano's. I went to school with the guy whose father owned it. And Steve Miller finishes playing and his drummer, Tim, that's no longer with us. He was hanging out and in walks Hendrix. Really late. Walks over to me. Now that I know him personally, right. walks over me. He says, "You want to jam, man?" I said, "What? Oh, wow. We have no amps, but we had a loft on 36th Street downtown." He says, "Come on, we'll get in my limo. We'll go down to your loft and put a couple of four by twelve marshals in the car, and we'll go down to my loft." And I'm knocking on the door, and our road manager was living there at the time, who is now such his manager, Mick Brigden. Here's a little bit of fun trivia. Uh -huh. But it just shows you how small uh, our world is in a, in a funny kind of way. Mm -hmm. You know, you're from the Berkeley area and you took lessons from Joe Satriani, right? Yep. 
Well, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Joe's manager, Nick Brigden, a nice British gentleman, mm-hmm. actually wrote <laughs> He actually wrote for Mountain. I did not know that. I do know Mick, but I, did, I had no idea. I never knew <laughs> yeah. that about him. I knew he had some history, you know, coming from Bill Graham Presents. But that I had no idea. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Mick, open the door. Iron Gates, you know, in a where, you know, warehouse type place. He opens the gate. I said, Mick, this is my friend Jimmy. <laughs> he goes, and Jimmy's wearing a fringe. And uh, there's a picture of me and Hendrix on the uh, website playing that night. And he played a bass. He played a left-handed bass. And I'm playing guitar. It was mind-boggling because when you look at the picture, whoa, that's Hendrix. He's wearing that everything. When you remember Hendrix, remember the hat, Absolutely. the fringe? That's what he was wearing. And we played some blues thing, but I remember there was a newspaper in a village called East Village Other or something. I saw Jimi Hendrix jam with Leslie Weston. You couldn't hear Jimmy's guitar. Leslie drowned him out. He wasn't playing guitar. <laughs> He's playing bass. That's how smart this guy was, you know. We're going down a little bit of the guitar rabbit hole here. Mm -hmm. But I think part of it, you know, whether you're talking about Jimi Hendrix or or you're talking about Eric Clapton or you're talking about Leslie West is these guys essentially were playing through amplifiers that weren't meant to do what they were making them do. Mm. (laughs) Right, right. And I think in their sound, you sort of feel this, the strain and the tension of that. Uh And, you know, there was no effects pedals or master volume where you could get that big distorted sound very easily. Right. And then you had to turn the amps up to 10 in order to get that. So not only is the amp straining, but as the guitarist, you're having to use every bit of your technique to right. keep it from feedback and, and the amp from running away with your sound, you know, right. and, and Hendrix made it a whole art of sort of manipulating that. But even somebody like Leslie West, I think you hear his muting technique and that somehow adds to the whole thing. Right. So you're like, you know you hear he's having to mute that sound so it just the whole thing doesn't uh, fly away and and start feeding back give me some love and maybe my favorite song of all time and there's no guitar in there that I can hear it's just the sound of that organ you know and his vocal That's what we did on Nantucket Slayer Ride. I figured out how to do it. Yeah. You take the front off a of B3, there's a volume box with a volume. You can turn up the wattage. Then if you run an alligator clip from there <laughs> right. into a phone jack into the Marshall and with a little swirl on the Leslie cabinet, oh, that's killing. there you go. Mm-hmm. That was a C3 that he used, you know, not a B3.
Did you hear that? Kind of reminds me of Tony Iommi. And I want to talk briefly about the relationship between Black Sabbath and Mountain. Now, both are forerunners of heavy rock. Black Sabbath gets more credit with starting heavy metal, but you have to remember they had the imagery that was inspired by horror films, as well as the lyrics. And Mountain had songs like Mississippi Queen or the song we were just hearing in which they were emulating the sound of Steve Winwood and the Spencer Davis group, which you wouldn't have heard in Black Sabbath. However, there are moments throughout Mountain's catalog in which it can almost pass for Black Sabbath. And there are moments throughout Black Sabbath's catalog where you can trace the influence of Mountain. So one example is a song that actually doesn't sound like either group, but it's a standout track from Black Sabbath called Planet Caravan. And it's this dark psychedelic piece with congas. Check it out. Now let's go back to the mountain tune we just heard. It's called Nantucket Sleigh Ride. And just listen to the part right before the verse. So Ozzy's vocal part from Planet Caravan works perfectly over that one part of Nantucket Sleigh Ride. Same key, same chord progression, similar feel and tempo. Remember, they were hearing that song performed live every night while on tour with Mountain in 1971. And at the end of that tour, Tony Iommi receives a gift from his new friend Leslie West. He talks about this in a magazine interview. This gift was an acoustic guitar, and it showed up on the next Black Sabbath album. And finally, one more Leslie West Black Sabbath connection. In 2007, Leslie West recorded a song that I've often considered the first metal song, not in sound, but in title and attitude. And it's an odd choice by Bob Dylan. But the song is called Masters of War. And it sounds like it would be a Black Sabbath song, right? This is the original I'm your masters of war Here that build the big guns Here that build the death planes Here that build all the bombs And I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. That is an iconic song by Bob Dylan. But I'll bet not as many of you are as familiar with a version recorded in 2007 by Leslie with the new version of Mountain. And uh, make sure you listen to the second verse, because there's a surprise, as they say. Wait for it. Want you to know I can see through 
Isn't that awesome? It's like Sabbath Mountain Dylan. That's from 2007. The album's called Masters of War. Special guest, Ozzy. The mountain sound, the Leslie West sound isn't that. It's really the sound of a guitar through an amplifier. Right. And to me, not to be all nostalgic about it or anything, but there's something very acoustic about that sound. Mm -hmm. It's a natural sound. The sound of the string going right into an amplifier and coming right out. Yeah. And uh, to bring this around full circle, you think about the one modern guy that had that beautiful sound. That was Van Halen. Yeah. And his early amp didn't have the master volume either. And it was sort of funny when I went to 5150 one time with Billy Corgan, Uh you know, Ed, had his Ed Van Halen had his Marshall amp in the studio uh-huh. and we're both plugging in and Billy at one point said, well, where's your booster pedal? Where's your distortion? Uh-huh. And Ed's like, I don't use that. I just uh-huh. turn the amp up. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. And he just turns it up to 10 and yeah. it's like going, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's holding on to it for your dear life. But again, it's sort of like how these guys did it. And again, the beauty of the sound and the tension of having to deal with an amplifier on full blast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was, I think, the ultimate example of making an amp do what it wasn't designed to do. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I think for any young players out there listening to this that aren't familiar with Leslie West, um, it might listen to somebody like Leslie and say, well, you know, he's really not doing anything, you know, all that remarkable. But then you just have to say, yeah, but listen to each and every note and 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 how he's able to find some beauty there. Yes. People know Mississippi Queen, but oh, there's um, so much more. <laughs> there's so much more. I I was listening today, thinking about your show and thinking uh-huh. about Leslie. Uh-huh. I went back to mountain's third record mm. it was called flowers of evil yes i had that yeah and that uh, one side is basically 25 minute extended jam with leslie mm-hmm. and if you want a sort of a textbook on the leslie west sound it doesn't get much better than that because he's just sort of going at it for 25 minutes straight, you know, yeah. playing all these amazing chords. And it even gets a little fusion-y towards the end. It's interesting. True. It starts out with him playing, yeah. you know, like rollover Beethoven. Mm-hmm. But by the end, he's him and the keyboard player, Felix Papillardi, are actually doing some fairly intricate things. And it's a really nice place that players can also go to if they just want to hear Leslie sound. And it's live. I mean, there's you know, there's no editing. There's no anything going on there. Okay, so the track that Brad is talking about is indeed 25 minutes long. And I'm not going to play the whole thing, obviously. And I also want to point out that when you listen to the album, unless you're paying close attention, I mean, you can get a little lost 20 minutes into a track, right? And it starts off with open solo, then they go into rollover Beethoven, they do a bunch of stuff. I'm just going to play a quick clip towards the end, the jam section that Brad was referring to. Mm -hmm. 
What tone, right? That track, by the way, is called Dream Sequence, and it's from Flowers of Evil. We also heard a little bit of that at the very beginning of the episode. But I also want to play what starts off the track. This is very interesting in a way. Check this out. You hear how he's doing that little classical melody there. Those are called volume swells. That's when you turn the volume knob and use that to make a sound. Usually you play the note either by discreetly picking before or pressing hard with the left hand. You could hear him making the sound a little bit because that's so raw and live. But that is the earliest example that I've heard of volume swells. The first person I heard do volume swells was Mr. Van Halen. Okay, so obviously Eddie Van Halen took this technique a step further. He did it in an actual recording studio with polished sound and added delay. That's called Cathedral, by the way, as I'm sure most Van Halen fans know. Do I know for a fact that he got the idea from Leslie West? No, but I do know that he was one of those teens in the early 70s listening to Mountain Records, learning the licks of Leslie West. Check out this next lick. Okay, now just think about the picking and the intensity of the attitude. And think about this. And you know where the rest of that goes. I don't know for a fact that those licks are related. But we do know that Eddie spent time in his room learning the licks of Leslie West. And I can't imagine he wouldn't have learned that whole record, knowing what we know about Van Halen. Okay, so we're just over the hour point. It is time to start winding down. And I don't want to make things too much about Van Halen. Obviously, this is a Leslie West episode. But our guest, Brad Tolinsky, does have an exciting new book, and it involves Van Halen. So let's hear from Brad again, and then we will start wrapping things up. So, Alex, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, it's almost a world premiere. <laughs> okay. Breaking news. Breaking news. <laughs> Here on Moods and Modes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for the past year, I've been working along with another really great music writer and guitar journalist, Chris Gill, yep. on a book about Ed Van Halen. I think it'll be the first real major bio on Edward to come out on the newsstands through a major publisher in the beginning of October. And very excited about it. It's going to be called Eruption Conversations with Edward Van Halen. And uh, it's going to be available on Amazon. So all of you out there who are big Van Halen fans, you know, do your advanced orders. Now hit that Amazon button. Yes. Right now. Right now. Yeah. (laughs) But the idea behind the book was, you know, there have been some other books out on Ed, and it always seemed like that they took these 
little portions of his life, Mm -hmm. the early days or this period or, you know, Sammy wrote his book. Of course, he was going to cover his own period. And I didn't feel like anybody had really captured the entire story. And the entire story is fascinating. And Mm -hmm. Ed is such a complex individual. And I didn't feel like anybody had captured that in its complete glory. And both Chris and I, my co-author, had interviewed Ed, probably had between us like 30, 40 hours of interview. Wow. And they covered all different points in his life and his career and you guys had been in the room with him before too, uh, right? yeah i've been up to 5150 quite a few times as well as chris yeah that sounds like the best objective close-up view of him i think so i hope so and i'm going to jump in for time we did continue to talk about van halen for quite a while. I'm going to save that content for bonus footage because we are focused on Leslie West. However, as we wrapped up our conversation, I suddenly remembered that at some point, Van Halen, the later Van Halen with Sammy Hagar, took Leslie West and Mountain on tour as their support act. Yeah, Ed was a huge fan of Leslie West. He was a fan of Mountain. Yeah. I do believe that that they played Mississippi Queen together on stage. It was one of the few times I'd had like somebody else on stage with him play. Yes. Yeah. That's and cool. philosophically, they came from a very similar place. And I think that's worth remembering as we wind down. Leslie West mattered to Eddie Van Halen. He mattered to Ozzy Osbourne. He mattered to Howard Stern. He mattered to numerous other people whose level of name recognition far eclipsed his own. And he was a hero in other ways besides playing guitar. He was a hero in the sense of overcoming adversity and defying expectations. He had lifelong health issues. He was diabetic. He eventually lost a leg. He had weight issues. And let's face it, in a field as image conscious as the music business, he'd be the first to admit that he looked less like a guy who'd be on stage playing guitar at the Fillmore East than a guy who'd be selling guitars at a shop in the East Village. But it was never about image for Leslie. It was about keeping it real. Just like his playing, no pretension, no gimmicks. Let's hear a few final words from his friend, Howard. Getting on the radio and getting to know Leslie West was a huge triumph in my life. I never thought that I would ever get to know a guy like that. And he was just delightful. Just one of the most wonderful human beings, a pleasant man, like a, um, just a, just a good hearted guy. Wow. Howard Stern is not somebody we often hear struggling to find his words. And I should mention, I actually did meet Leslie once and he was gracious. Um, It was in a crowd, so I didn't really get a great chance to talk to him, but he spoke to everybody and um, he was hilarious and philosophical. So let's go out with a little bit of wisdom, courtesy of Mr. West. Leslie West with the last word and the final notes. I tried to emulate black guys singing. I see. You know, that's what I want to sound like Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett. I had a manager at the time, Fat Frankie, that said, you know, if you sing this R&B stuff with your voice, if you figure it out, because that's the only way you're going to be able to sing. You can't have sing pretty stuff, you know, so. And that's, yeah, that, that's what happened. Hey, look, you don't have to be black and broke to have the blues. Right. You know? Somebody steals your car, you can have the blues. If your cat pees on the rug, goddamn, you know, all this stuff. 
And uh, I just like the way they sound. And that's it for episode 19. The great Leslie West has moved on. I hope you learned some things about Leslie. I know I did. This episode was more of a challenge to put together than I realized. There's so much to the Leslie West story. And I was dealing with uh, massive computer failure and technical challenges, but I was inspired by Leslie's example to persevere. So thank you, Leslie, for that and all you did. And thanks to our first returning guest, Brad Tolinsky, former editor of Guitar World and now author. And everybody check out his new book, Conversations with Eddie Van Halen, which is available for pre-order on Amazon now. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton. Final edits and mixes by Justin Thomas from Revoice Media. Production assistance by Matt Bavuso. Original music by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. In the intro, middle break, and this outro with assistance by Matt Zabrowski on the drums and Nathan Pack on the bass. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Patreon members, for supporting the podcast directly. If you would like to join our Patreon community, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Skolnick. And you can support the podcast in numerous ways. Tell your friends, post about it online, give us a review, and whatever you do, hit subscribe. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone at Osiris and our entire team. And we'll see you on the next episode. Take care and be safe. Osiris. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hi, this is Henry K host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.